Please be seated. There's an amazing line, see that his word is never broken. Let's go to our God and thanks for that. Father, you have made great and glorious promises through the ages to us. And you're not like man that you should lie. If these were our promises, they would be unreliable, but your word stands firm. Uh, man is flesh, we're like the grass, and the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word will endure forever, and we place our hope in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Take out your copy of God's word, if you would. Turn with me to John chapter 1. It's our, our conviction, our practice as a church that uh, we work verse by verse through, verses, uh, through passages of Scripture, and so uh, today we've come to John 1, uh, starting at verse 19. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, use the one that's in your row, and we'd love to give you that as a gift. You'll find uh, the passage on page 886. Now, I do want to explain one thing that may be confusing if you're a little bit new to reading the Bible. Uh, as I mentioned, we're reading John's Gospel. Uh, this is the fourth of the Gospels. John was an apostle uh, that wrote it. But John, which means God is gracious, it was a common name in the first century just like it is today. And so there was another John named John the Baptist. So you've got John the Apostle who wrote this gospel. You've got John the Baptist who was the cousin of the Lord Jesus according to the flesh. And he was that pre-runner, the, the voice crying out in the wilderness before Jesus. Now this is the third time that the gospel writer John has mentioned John the Baptist just in the first uh, chapter. Those first two times, I've largely glossed over it, knowing that we were going to come back to it today, and we'll come back to it once again in John chapter 3. Listen to the reading of God's Word, John 1, starting at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The grass does wither, flower does fade, the word of God will stand forever. Today is, of course, the last day of 2023, and I assume that at least some of us, if not all of us, are thinking in terms of the new year in 2024 and things that we might want to do differently in 2024 than we did in 2023. I, over the last few weeks particularly, I've seen a need in myself to eat a little more healthily in 2024 than I did in 2023. It's not my fault. There's just good cooks in this congregation, not the least of which is my wife. And every time I eat something I probably shouldn't be eating, I just think to myself, that sounds like a 2024 problem. 
and now it's a tomorrow problem. And so I will be extremely committed to eating healthier for at least the next three or four days of 2024. Now, maybe you're going to read your Bible more. Uh, Pastor Walton is a good pastor, and he wants you to hear the voice of God, and that's why he's urging you, read your Bibles, and I give a hearty second to that. Read your Bible every day. Maybe you want to stop a bad habit. Good. That's always a good idea. Maybe you want to be more consistently present in worship. That's a good idea. The scriptures warn us. They command us not to neglect meeting together. I'm going to ask you to add one more thing to that list. That is that you would speak to people who do not believe in Jesus about the Jesus you believe in. Sometimes we call that evangelism. Word can be a little intimidating, can it? Evangelism, it's a good word. It comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. But it's not actually the word the Bible uses to talk about telling people about Jesus. The Bible's word is simply to witness or to be a witness. Most of us think of that word in legal terms like a courtroom. What's a witness's job in the courtroom? The witness's job is simply to tell people what you've seen. That sounds a lot less complicated, doesn't it? It seems to take some of the mystery and the intimidation out of it. Evangelism conjures up sort of Ideas of needing to have a technique or a program, those are all ideas that have been thrust upon us mainly in the last half century or so. But witnessing, you're simply telling people what you have seen, and dear friends, if the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have encountered him and his grace and his glory have transformed your life, then you have something to tell people. You are witnesses as well. Tell people how Christ Jesus saves sinners. Tell people how he redeems our lives from the pit. Tell people that there is hope, even for the most hopeless of situations and people. Do you think you could add that to your 2024 to-do list? Witness to others. This morning, we're going to learn about witnessing, and we're going to sit at the feet of this man, John the Baptist, who is repeatedly referred to in this fourth gospel as a witness. Look back with me at John 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then John 1.15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What was John's job? It it was simply to talk about what he had seen in the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. We see it actually in our text today. Look at verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John. Our, Our editors, our translators, didn't translate it witness. They translated it testimony. But it's the same Greek root, the word martyrios. It's also the root, by the way, from which we get the word martyr. Because to be a witness in the first century, was to prepare to die for the sake of the faith. If you had met Jesus, if you had been changed by Jesus, and if you were prepared to speak about Jesus publicly, you were, there was a good chance, at least, that you were going to be martyred for it. Well, this morning, we're going to learn from John the Baptist how we, too, can be witnesses of the gospel in this world. And there's three things we're going to look at. The first is the ministry. 
The second is the man, and the third is the message. So the ministry, the man, the message. First, let's look at John's ministry. Now, on the one hand, everything about John's ministry was remarkable. He had a remarkable birth. He was born to to an aged, barren mother. He he was remarkable even in the womb. If you remember the story, his mother Elizabeth and her cousin, according to the flesh, Mary, were gathered together. Uh, both to try to process these, these prophecies that they had received about being uh, miraculously pregnant. And John the Baptist, there in the presence of Jesus Christ, who was in the womb of Mary at the time, John the Baptist leapt with joy to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that, that the first person to recognize being in the presence of the incarnate Lord Jesus was a baby in the womb? That's pretty impressive for somebody whom half of Americans would not even say was a living being yet, isn't it? John had a remarkable calling. He was to be the forerunner for the Lord Jesus. So in the ancient world, it was common that when a king was going to travel, an individual would go before him and make preparations. He would make sure that the path was clear. He would make sure that people knew the king was coming and he would prepare the way. And that's what we read about in Isaiah 40. This one who would go in the wilderness and make straight paths for the Lord. This is very remarkable. Now, at the same time, there were some very unremarkable things about John's ministry. One was the place where he ministered. John's ministry was in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't a big downtown steeple. It wasn't prime location. It was just the opposite. It was the Jordan Wilderness, One commentator described it as a hot, uninhabited depression, which is wild in every way and removed from all civilization. Uh, I tried to imagine what a job listing for John the Baptist's job would have looked like. Hey, come here. You know, if the heat doesn't kill you, the snakes will. So the place was unremarkable. The time in which John ministered was also unremarkable. In the past, God had spoken to his people through prophets. There there were many prophets through the years, but it had been generations since the last prophet, Malachi, had come and spoken of what God was going to do in redemptive history. And so when John comes on the scene, it's been 400 years since a prophet spoke. It's been a time of silence in terms of God's revelation to his people. And that silence took its toll on the people spiritually. What you find by the first century is most Jews had given up on looking for this Messiah, this shepherd king about whom the scriptures spoke so often, and they were looking for a political savior. And that's a little bit understandable. Over the last half millennium or so, the Jews had been captive to the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And so by this point, all the people wanted was a savior king who would rescue them, not from their sin within, which was their greatest need, but from their geopolitical enemies on the outside. And what happened in that time of spiritual silence was that it led to deep spiritual darkness among the people. You know, this is always going to be true. Anytime the word of God is not faithfully and regularly preached, darkness will ensue. And and so through all of life in Israel, uh, though all of it centered around religion, it was a very, very spiritually dark place in the first century. The religious leaders were corrupt. They They were always jockeying for power and fame. 
And despite the the pretense of religion, there was great moral degradation and wickedness and indifference. There was much busyness, but little godliness. And so it was an unremarkable time in terms of of the spiritual climate. It, It was certainly not the time that you and I would look at and say, this seems like the perfect time to bring about a massive work of the Holy Spirit in redemptive history. Yet every time we see John, he's got a crowd of followers. People are flocking to this strange man who's preaching in the middle of nowhere. Here's the reason I'm highlighting this. There's never a perfect scenario to do ministry. If you're a Christian, you are called to do ministry. You are called by life and word to proclaim Jesus Christ. And I think some of us really struggle with looking for the perfect setting. We, we like the idea of witnessing. We want to talk to other people about the gospel, but it's never perfect. I don't know what to say. Or it's just not the right time. Or, or his heart's way too hard. Or what if they ask me questions that I don't know? I'm not equipped for this. You know, it's when we, when, when we feel most incompetent to the task that God tends to do the greatest work, isn't it? John's context was a very unlikely context for a great work of the Holy Spirit, and yours might feel that way as well. And God says, that's perfect. I love using the weak things of the world to shame the wise. I love to do what you think cannot be done so that when it is done, you realize it wasn't you who did it, but me. And it was my power working through your weakness. That was true in John's day. That's true in our day. At times in history, the the light of, of the gospel has burst into the darkness inexplicably and with great power. And at the most unlikely of times. Think of 200 years ago in Beaufort. Uh, 200 years ago, we had a revival here. It was a time when the community was divided over politics, when spiritual indifference and complacency and lukewarmness reigned. Families were divided over all sorts of issues, and the economy was in dire straits. Can you imagine a setting like that? And that was the setting in which 200 years ago, God sent a preacher to come and preach the gospel, and many were revived. Many were brought to new life. And and this small town was converted almost as a whole, and families were restored, and broken relationships were mended, and some people went into the ministry, others into the mission field. The gospel in Beaufort came with great power in an unlikely time. And so as we're thinking about the ministry of John the Baptist and how mightily God worked in a very unlikely time, let me ask you, do you think God could do that again? We look at our world today, and it is, does not seem ripe for a powerful work of the Spirit, does it? We see hardening. We see spiritual indifference all over the place. And oftentimes in history, that has been the greatest works of the Holy Spirit. Do you think the Lord could do that again? Let me tell you, the way he generally is going to do it is to stir up the church to greater zeal, to stir up the church to be busy about the work of the gospel. And so we ought to be busy being witnesses to the Lord Jesus. I don't know what your ministry is. I don't know where the Lord has called you, how he has called you to be a witness, but I know if you're a Christian, he has called you to witness to him. So that's the ministry. Second, the man. For many of us, when we think of John the Baptist, we think of his quirks. This was a man who ate locusts and wore camel's hair. 
seems strange. Camel's hair sounds itchy. Not a fan of locusts. Wondered if they'd be wrapped in bacon if they would taste all right. It's one of the privileges of the new covenant. We're not called to intimidate, uh, imitate John in this way, though, thank God. But there are ways in which John ought to be a pattern for us to follow. And, and one thing I want you to note, in all the accounts we have of John the Baptist, there is almost nothing about his giftings. We don't really know if he was an eloquent preacher. We don't know if he was a great organizer. We don't know any of that stuff. What the scriptures highlight about him, just as they do on all, in almost all contexts of spiritual leadership, what the scriptures highlight about John the Baptist is the man's character. I want to draw your attention to two aspects of his character that are vital for us as well if we want to be faithful witnesses in the world. The first was his personal holiness. John was a man who was marked by great likeness to Christ. Now, not perfect by any stretch. We know from another episode in his life that at least for a time as he was sitting in a jail cell, he began to wonder is the Jesus that I've been preaching really the Jesus that I've been hoping for? And he sent messengers, he sent disciples to ask, Jesus, are you the one or do we need to wait for another? So even John had what appears to be some moment of, of struggle. But John was zealous for God and it shows in his life. This was a man who ministered very publicly and there were no charges of sin or scandal or impriety, impropriety, isn't it? Heartbreaking how often we hear about pastors falling into scandal. I don't think it's nearly as, as likely, as, as common as we think it is, I suppose, for every celebrity pastor caught in a financial or sexual uh, scandal. There's probably hundreds of, of unknown pastors plodding along faithfully. But John understood that before his voice could be heard, his life must be seen, and John practiced what he preached. You know, a problem for a lot of us is that we have, we confuse theoretical holiness with actual holiness. Some days it's very easy to get up and spend time in the Word and feel quite holy, isn't it? But holiness isn't a mystical condition experienced apart from the real world. God hasn't called us to live in a vacuum. We don't go into monasteries and, and sequester ourselves from all humanity. God has called us to live holy lives in the midst of a fallen and broken world. Uh, holiness isn't how well you can pontificate on the fine points of theology and critique those who can't. Holiness is how you live for the Lord in the midst of a fallen, sinful, broken world. A man who is holy, a woman who is holy, wants to bring all of life into conformity with the Word of God because the Word of God is the will of God. And so a holy one, a holy person, a godly person, their holiness will, will show as they engage with others and how they love God and how they treat the poor, how they make disciples how husbands love their wives and wives respect to and honor their husbands no matter how difficult that may be at times. It's how children submit to their parents. John was so committed to biblical holiness that he even opposed King Herod's illicit relationship with Herodias. And eventually he was martyred for it, but he would rather lose his head than dishonor God. That's a man who understands what it is to live a holy life. We desperately need 
for the church to rediscover holiness. I think we are good about preaching imputed holiness, the holiness that is ours through faith in Christ. But oftentimes we fall very short when it comes to preaching practical holiness, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. And we desperately need people in the church to understand holiness today, especially men, especially men. Today we live in an age when men act like overgrown boys, don't we? Adult men who can spend hours watching sports and playing video games rather than reading the scriptures, rather than studying the word of God. Men who are addicted to pornography rather than loving their wives, who are content to speak of almost anything under the sun except eternal matters. And our culture loves that. The last thing our world wants is men who will act like men, isn't it? And so what happens today is that men who live to any degree of holiness, who are courageous yet tender, godly yet caring, loving and strong, our culture calls that toxic masculinity, don't they? And so what we're left with in our world today, and even so often in the church, isn't men of holiness and courage and tender strength. It's boys who can shave. Uh, Sometimes in conservative contexts, there's a rebellion against that in which men say, okay, then I'm just going to be an arrogant brute. They probably don't say that, but they live that way, not tenderly leading their families as, as shepherds, but harshly as brutes, not cherishing their wives, but demeaning them, not setting a godly example for their children, but domineering over them, always speaking of what they are against, but never speaking of the beauty of Christ or the wonder of the gospel. A man like John the Baptist is not either extreme. He's not the boy who can shave or the arrogant brute. He's a witness to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. If you want to be useful witnesses for the sake of the gospel, this is true for men and women, boys and girls in this room, then be sure that your life is being brought more and more into conformity with Jesus Christ. Don't let your words lead one way and your life another way. One of my heroes, uh, Robert Murray McShane, Pastor Walton's already mentioned him today. McShane said it this way, the Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. See, your life has been so transformed by Jesus Christ that people can see in your life something that is consistent with what you proclaim. Not perfect. We're far from it, but consistent with what we claim to believe. So John was a man marked by personal holiness. He was also a man marked by deep humility. I think humility is one of the greatest of the Christian virtues. Three times the Bible tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What is humility? I think it's sometimes we think of humility as the opposite of high self-esteem, as thinking less of yourself is the goal. But humility isn't simply thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. The word humble reflects how we were created. It comes from a Latin word, hummus, which means ground or dust or dirt. It's the root of our word human, We were dust. You go back to Genesis 1. We were dust, and we would remain dust if God had not breathed life into us. 
You know, pride is utterly ridiculous when we think about it. Nobody looks at a pile of dust and says, what a great pile of dust that is. But if not for God's work in your life, you would be, as would I, a pile of dust. But ever since sin came into the world, our natural tendency is to be very self-focused. You may not think too much of yourself, but all of us think of ourselves too much. True humility is to be so utterly focused on and fascinated by Jesus Christ that we forget all about ourselves. After a a sterling performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, the audience gave conductor Arturo Toscanini and the orchestra a prolonged ovation. Toscanini, uh, filled with emotion, turned to his musicians and whispered, I am nothing, you are nothing, but Beethoven is everything. This was true of John the Baptist. People kept coming to him in our passage. Are you Christ? No, I'm not Christ. Well, are are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are are you the great prophet we've been waiting for? No, I'm not him. Then who are you? I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. That's all I am. I'm just a voice. That's significant language. We saw it earlier in John's gospel. Jesus is the word. John's just a voice telling about the word, proclaiming the word. That's what a witness is. You know, John's humility is so worth imitating At every turn in John's life, there was temptation towards pride. There was temptation towards jealousy. You know, if any of us have reason for pride, John had more. And yet, at every turn, Jesus was greater than John. I always wondered, did Elizabeth ever look at John and say, why can't you be more like your cousin Jesus? He's just so great. But think about it. John is from the line of Levi. Jesus is from the line of Judah, David's line. John had a miraculous birth to an older barren woman. Jesus was born to a virgin. John is a prophet. Jesus is the son of God. When John was born, Luke tells us the neighborhood rejoiced. When Jesus was born, the heavens rejoiced. And John is going to fade to obscurity by the second half of each of the Gospels. But one day, every tongue in heaven and on earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, despite so many reasons for jealousy, John appears to have totally forgotten about himself. That's what we've got to do to be witnesses. You know, one of the ways we know we're really starting to understand the gospel is that by and large, we forget ourselves. Self-forgetfulness sets us free to use our gifts to the glory of God, not worrying about what people think of us, not worrying about are we getting enough credit for it. As long as I'm absorbed with those things, whether people notice my gifts and give me credit for it, I'll never be effective for the glory of God. I'll always be worried what other people are thinking. I'll I'll never be able to offend them with the hard truths of the gospel. We must forget about ourselves. There's a scene in John's gospel when uh, when John was baptizing people in the wilderness of Judea. And Jesus comes to do the same. And some of John's disciples come to him and say, listen, Jesus is over there doing the same thing you're doing. He's going to take some of your disciples with him. What does John say? He must increase. I must decrease. We will remain proud 
and the center of our lives until something far greater than us displaces us and kicks us off the throne. That only happens when we truly encounter the Lord Jesus as he is. If we don't do that, we take ourselves entirely too seriously. We constantly worry about what others think and are they giving us enough credit? Are they, what do they think of our reputation? All of that. Our world thrives for these things. Our, our world is so self-important, takes itself so seriously. Everyone's worried about uh, the whole world giving approval to their lifestyle choices. They're so worried about whether the whole world will refer to them with the right pronouns. And the church isn't immune to it. We're so desperately concerned with what others think of us and what they will say about us if we talk to them about Christ. Is that why we're not bolder for the sake of the gospel? We take ourselves so seriously. We think way too much of ourselves because we don't think nearly enough of the Lord Jesus. Following John's pattern, the more we remind ourselves of the glory and wonder of Christ, the less serious we take ourselves. The more we value his reputation, it becomes so much easier to tolerate a stranger's criticism of us or to accept us, accept reality when we've shared the gospel with somebody and they turn away from us. We think and relate and thrive better when we are fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, when we take him seriously. That's how John could speak so boldly and courageously for the Lord Jesus, because Christ had displaced him as the center of his own life. He displaced John's fear of man and made him into a lion heart. So John was a man marked by holiness and humility. I want you to see a third thing, and that's the message. Look at verse 29. The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Do you see how John's fulfilling that prophecy of Isaiah 40? Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. That's exactly what John's doing here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Throughout his whole ministry, John had one message. He wasn't a creative minister. He didn't have silly props for his sermons. He didn't have gimmicks. He wasn't doing demographic studies to figure out what the people wanted. He didn't nuance everything so that ultimately he said nothing. John had one very simple message, and that is repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is coming. You need to make room for him. Get rid of the idols that are so filling your heart and stuffing you and bloating you. Get rid of those so that there is room for the king on his throne. Believe him, trust him. That's that's John's message. He he was preparing a people for the cross. He was preparing them to understand that Jesus would go to the cross and bear the weight of their sins. You know, to go back to our previous discussion about humility, if being made from dust doesn't humble us, then surely the fact that the Son of God had to be mocked, beaten, pierced, nailed to a cross where he would suffer and die because that's what your sins deserve and my sins deserve. Surely that'll humble us, won't it? 
To quote Eric Alexander, a great Scottish preacher, true self-esteem comes from drawing near to the cross of Christ and finding what I am worth is what I am worth to God who gave the blood of his, eternal, his only son for my salvation. That's where true self-esteem is born. That's the gospel. That's the simple message. That's what John's a witness to, and that's what you're a witness to, that the only thing that matters in this life is where anybody stands with God. Do they know the Lord Jesus Christ? John was preparing a people to understand the coming cross. You and I, our job is to preach what happened 2,000 years ago upon the cross when the Lord Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree and to proclaim the free offer of the gospel. We don't have to get cute and fancy with it. We simply tell people the message that Jesus Christ saves sinners, so believe on him and be saved. I'm convinced that the reason churches try to get cute and pop, uh, uh, change the gospel, make it palatable to our world, is not because they think it'll be more effective, but because they want the world to like them. Y'all, biblical Christianity is rarely popular, and popular Christianity is rarely biblical. Do you remember what happened when the angel came to the priest Zechariah and told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to be pregnant with John? Zechariah doubted, and God shut his mouth. It was better for this minister in the house of God to have his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth than to proclaim a false message. And the same is true today. As Christians, we have but one message, and it is, by, it is salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we must speak of him and him crucified. And when we do that, when we proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world, it's not about our eloquence or our talent, but it's about a message that goes forth with divine authority. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Sometimes it's going to soften hearts, and sometimes it's going to harden hearts. You know, this was the case we'll see in a few months in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know that story. Well, it was 5,000 men. There were probably between 10 and 20,000 people total. And what did they want? They wanted food. And then Jesus preached in the latter part of chapter 6 a very hard message on human depravity and God's sovereign grace. And the crowd went from 20,000 to about 12. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says to him, to where will we go? You have the words of life. Friends, so do you, as you bear witness to the gospel. John was different from us in so many ways, and yet he's not really all that different. Like John, our ministry is not ideal. It's not perfect. We're confronted by silence and spiritual darkness in our world. It's pervasive, and just when we think it can't get any worse, it does. Like John, God is far less concerned with our gifts than our character. Are we men and women of holiness and humility that the gospel might be seen in us before it is heard from us? Like John, we have one message, and it's Jesus. That's why the church exists. That's why you exist, is to proclaim salvation in Christ alone. It's not that complicated, but it is hard, isn't it? 
And it's not complicated, but it's hard. We, we worry about getting it right, and we worry about what people think, and we take ourselves so seriously. But when we begin to take Christ seriously, the message will come. The message will come, maybe not easily, maybe not perfectly, but it'll come. And as it comes out of our lips, it goes out with God's power. And so you and I, we're called to be witnesses. How do we apply this text? It's uh, three applications. First, will you pray? Will you pray for yourself and for our congregation that we might be men and women of such holiness and humility that we would be willing to be bold for the sake of Christ? There are a lot of us in this room. You look back at the book of Acts, the church started with a very small handful, smaller numbers than this. And as they proclaimed the gospel, God brought people to himself in great power. And as we increasingly understand the love of Christ, it will cause a revolution in our hearts such that every time we walk through those doors, we understand that we are walking into the mission field. And God has called us to be witnesses. Will you pray for that? That we would not be afraid of that, but that we would be bold to that task. Second, to be truly effective witnesses, we need to be self-forgetful. All of us are guilty of this. We are curved in on ourselves, so we like to bring, our, bring everything back to ourselves. We like to be the point of reference. People are talking and we like to shift the subject to whatever we're interested in. This is just fallen human nature. Gospel humility unseats us from the center of our lives so that we can begin to listen to and care for others. Not, not constantly talking about ourselves and what matters to us, but listening to them learning from them. I think it's C.S. Lewis that said, if somebody, if you ever meet a truly humble person, you won't say, wow, that person's humble. You'll say, wow, that person cared about me. Uh, One of the best ways to be able to share the gospel with somebody else is to show them first that you care deeply about their life. We need to be self-forgetful for that. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, you Calvinists don't believe in witnessing. You just think you're the frozen chosen. That's not true. We do believe in it. We just don't do it enough. Why not? Is it that we don't care where people spend eternity? I don't think that's the case. I know this church well. I know that many of you have deep longings for people in your life to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But for so many of us, we're silent because we're so worried about what others will think of us. We need to learn to be self-forgetful and only the gospel can do that. Third, time and life are fleeting. Time and life are fleeting. The calendar reminds us of this. We're going to tear another year off. It seems like we just, we just turned to 2023 and now we're turning to 2024. And when days are gone, we do not get them back. Ephesians 5, uh, 15 and 16, make the most of every opportunity knowing this, that the days are evil. You can lose all your money and one day possibly gain it back, but if you waste your time, you will never get it back. Jonathan Edwards had a list of resolutions, and I read them every year at this time. He read them, I think, every week. 
One of them, he said, was, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would have lived if they were to live their lives over again. And he says, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. In other words, I'm going to live so that when I come to death, I don't look back and say, boy, I wish I had lived differently. I'm going to live differently at age 17, at age 42, at age 88, so that when I come to death, I will not wish I had lived differently. When we sing the hymn, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all her sons away. What does it mean if time is fleeting and bears all her sons away? It means that some of the people you love, some of your neighbors, some of your coworkers, some of your family members who do not know Christ will not live to see another year, perhaps. Others in this room may go to be with the Lord before this time next year. In heaven, we will have endless days to speak of Christ, but here our days are numbered. Let us not delay in telling others the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, these are hard words. I, I, I feel it. There are people that, uh, that we love who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, and we know and we grieve that their souls are in great danger. We thank you that we are not the Christ. It's not up to us to save them, but you have given us the great privilege of telling them about the one who can about the Lord Jesus. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would make us a church that is bold in our witness, not obnoxious, not brutish, but bold, because you haven't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and boldness. And so we pray, God, that you would embolden us to speak truth, and all of us right now have people on our minds and hearts that we know we need to speak to. Oh Lord, equip us by your word,